You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. What's up, Revolution? Do it. You can do better than that. What's up, Revolution? That's, yeah, Holly Gale. That's wild. So, like, really, you guys doing all right? Autumn's doing fine. Cool. Well, whatever. Uh, you guys normally know that I do, like, some kind of intro, usually try to make you laugh or something like that to start off the sermon. Yeah, it doesn't work. My jokes bomb all the time. I love puns. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying I want to be a dad, but I can't wait until, like, that day comes where I can say puns and dad jokes, and it's, like, actually appropriate for once in my life. Um, See, like even now, like I can't make you laugh because it suck. Uh, I would starve to death if I were a stand-up, mu- or stand-up musician, stand-up comedian. God help me. Um, anyway, but we're not going to be doing that. Actually, we have a, a pretty large text to cover this evening. We are still in the Gospel of Luke. We're doing this sermon series uh, called, Did Jesus Really Say That? For those of you who are, who are new here, Did Jesus Really Say That? is a series about... Um, kind of like the hard sayings of Jesus, because you're usually Jesus is uh, portrayed in our day and age as some kind of a Birkenstock wearing hippie from California that just wants to hug everybody, um, which I guess is an aspect of Christ because he's incredibly kind and, and, and loving and generous and loves sinners. Um, but he also says some really harsh things too because he's king, he's Lord, he's God over all things. Um, so we kind of wanted to look into those sayings and teachings of Jesus and see, you know, what, what did he say that's kind of hard for us to, to take in sometimes. Um, so we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 20, verses 1 through 19, I believe. Um, but yeah, so we'll go ahead and just hop straight into that um, and read the first eight verses. So starting in verse 1. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people and preaching the good news in the temple... <clears throat> The leading priests, the teachers of religious law, and the elders came up to him. They demanded, by what authority are you doing all these things? Who gave you the right? Let me ask you a question first, he replied. Did John's authority to baptize come from heaven, or was it merely human? They talked it over amongst themselves. If we say it was from heaven, he will ask why we didn't believe John. But if we say it was merely human, the people will stone us because they are convinced John was a prophet. So they finally replied that they didn't know. And Jesus responded, then I won't tell you by what authority I do these things. Like, I'm just throwing this out to you. Like, this is one of the funniest. Like, we still have more to cover. Like, that's one of the funniest things Jesus ever does. Like, they come up, by what authority do you do this? Well, let me ask you a question. By what authority did John do it? We don't know. Then I'm not going to talk to you anymore. Like, he, like, just doesn't play. I think that's funny. A lot of people are like, why wouldn't Jesus answer their question? But we're going we're gonna to get into that, actually. Um, but some of you guys might remember a couple weeks ago, because we had to cancel last week because of the white death that came upon us. And uh, some of you guys can't drive in the snow. Some, some of you guys can't drive in the good weather either, but... We didn't want you out in the snow. Um, but a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Jesus clearing out the temple, right? It's like that iconic moment where Jesus goes into the temple, and he sees people selling stuff, and they're taking advantage of the poor, and he loses it. And he starts flipping tables, saying, you know, this, this house is supposed to be a house of prayer, and you've turned it into a den of thieves. And he braids up a cord of whips and drives people out of the temple. It's a good time. Um, but that's what we went over last week and how Jesus was just sick of seeing um, the poor being taken advantage of and people claiming to be godly, um, claiming to be lovers of God, and just being incredibly shady and caring really nothing about God or any of his commandments. Um, so whenever these religious leaders 
go to Jesus. This is probably the next day or maybe the day after. Um, they're still, that's fresh in their mind that Jesus just did this. He just cleared the temple. And they are super angry. Um, and these religious leaders, probably the Sanhedrin, um, if you guys know that Bible word, uh, these guys are the ones who make up like the highest Jewish court you could possibly go to. These are like the elite Jews. I believe there were 71 or 73 of them. This is like quite a few, but this is like some of the members of the Sanhedrin go to Jesus and they're super mad because he cleansed the temple and they're really upset that he's teaching in the temple now because they didn't think he had the authority to do that. So they go to him as he's teaching. I, I, I would imagine they interrupt him and they demand, by what authority are you doing this? Right? Who do you think you are? What right do you have to clear the temple out and then have the gall to stay here and teach? Um, and, and they're really familiar with Jesus. Right? So they're asking him, by what authority do you do this? And they're super familiar with Christ. Um, a lot, like, especially the religious leaders um, in Jerusalem at that time were really familiar with Jesus. Um, they know that he claims authority from God the Father. Right? In John 6, 38, Jesus says, I don't come to do my will, but I come to do the will of the one who sent me, referring to God the Father. So he, he's claimed multiple times that he is God. He's claimed multiple times that he is the Messiah sent by God to redeem fallen humanity. He, he's claimed multiple times that his authority comes from God. Um, and they know that. They would have been acquainted with that. And yet they go to him anyway and ask him, by what authority are you doing this? Because they reject that authority. <clears throat> Sorry, I guess I'm stuck in my throat. Um, but they reject Jesus' authority as God, as coming from God. Um, and the reason why they're doing that, uh, I'm going to wager, is because Jesus poses a threat to their own authority. He's posing a threat to the power that they have. So, I'm just kind of recapping what we just read. So, knowing that they already reject him, Jesus asks them a question about John the Baptist. right? And, and, and rabbis kind of taught like this back then. Um, some of you college students are probably familiar with the Socratic method. Hmm? Raise your hands. Yeah, right? Like you ask questions and they kind of lead people to the right answer. Um, the rabbis would do that. So if someone would ask them a question, they'd answer them back with another question. And if you answer that question that they asked you correctly, then you have the answer to your own question. It's kind of convoluted. Don't really understand why Jesus did it that way. He could have just answered the question. But, you know, he's God and I'm not, so far be it from me. Um, I'm trying to be a little bit funny up here, but apparently some of you just think I'm a blaspheming heretic now. Um, not the case, right? So Jesus is saying, answer this question correctly and you'll get the answer to yours. Where was John's authority from, right? God or man, right? And he actually specifically says, where did John get his authority to baptize, right? And this wasn't just John's authority to dip people in water in the Jordan River and all that stuff. Um, authority to baptize refers to John the Baptist's entire ministry. Um, and just to recap what John's ministry looked like, um, He's baptizing people for certain, but he's preaching a lot of things. Uh, the first thing that I would say is he's preaching the coming Messiah, right? He's this voice in the wilderness crying out, you know, prepare the way of the Lord, right? The Messiah is coming. He's coming to redeem God's people. He's coming to fix this broken problem in our world that we have of sin and to turn us back to the one true God, the God of the Bible. Um, so he's preaching that, and he's also preaching um, that all people need to repent and turn to God for salvation, that there's no salvation outside of God and accepting his Messiah. Um, the third thing that he's saying, and the religious leaders really didn't like this, he's saying, okay, if you've repented and you truly are following God and you've turned to God, then you need to bear fruit in keeping with your repentance. He says that in Luke chapter 3, verse 8. And what that means is live a life reflecting the fact that you have agreed with God about your sin, turned from it, and are now trying to follow God's commands and, and to love him. 
Um, so he's saying bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And then the fourth thing, and I would argue the most important thing that John preached, is that Jesus is the Messiah. Right? That's the most important thing that John preached. So that's kind of a, a synopsis, I guess, uh, of what John taught. And keep this in mind, too. The religious leaders of the day, these men on the Sanhedrin, they rejected John's ministry as well. Right? So they reject Jesus. They rejected John's ministry, mainly because they didn't like John's message. Right? They, they didn't want to repent. So they don't really want to follow God. They just really like their own power, their own authority, and the perks that comes with it. But they really don't want anything to do with actually living a holy life and bearing fruit that comes from following God. So privately, they thought that John had no authority from God either. Right? But then they say that the people... Right, the general population who had heard of John and heard his message, the people knew that John was a prophet. Right? Why? Why did the people know that? I, I would argue this. The people, like the general population, they weren't so blinded by a desire to keep their authority and to keep their power that they couldn't see the truth. Right? They weren't so blinded by their own desire for authority that they would reject John. But the religious leaders were. So they did not accept him as a prophet for that reason. They wanted to keep their own power. They didn't want to admit that they had been wrong. So in verses 4 and 5 that we just read, we see that the Sanhedrin is really, really in a tough spot, right? Because if they say that Jesus, or that John was from God, then Jesus is going to ask them, then why didn't you repent? Why didn't you bear fruit in keeping with repentance? And why didn't you believe that I'm the Messiah? (laughs) Right? Like, I think this is really funny. Like, is Jesus going to ask them, then why didn't you accept John's message? Why, why are you questioning me about my authority? Is going to be his counter question to them saying, John's of God. Right? And if they say John wasn't from God and that he was a false prophet, then the people will stone him to death. Because that's what you did, uh, apparently. If, if you rejected a, a true prophet or claimed that a true prophet was a false prophet, the people would have you killed. Um, I do believe that's, that's in the Old Testament somewhere. I'm kind of fuzzy on that. Forgive me, I don't know everything, but I know enough to be dangerous with a microphone. Um, right? So they're in this tough spot. If we say that he's just this raging heretic, then the people are going to kill us. And if we say that he was sent from God, then Jesus is going to say, then why do you got a problem with me? Because John didn't have a problem with me. Um, and I think that this is one of the most ironic things in this passage. Because they refuse to accept the authority of Jesus, they become willing to make themselves look like idiots. Right? They look at Jesus after, like, you know, I imagine they huddle up, right? And they're like, all right, guys, we've got this. We don't know. Right? Like, they just look him in the face. We don't know. These men who are supposed to be the most educated people in Judaism, there is no higher court to go to for, like, legal matters if you're a Jew. And, like, there's especially no higher court to go to for religious matters. And these men are saying, we can't distinguish who is of God and who isn't. Right, this is hilarious to me. They're, again, they hate Jesus so much and refuse to accept Jesus so much, they're willing to make themselves look like idiots. And Jesus knows that they know better. Right? So he says, well, this conversation is over because Jesus don't play. Right? Um, so what's this whole thing? I want to give you a recap on that. What is really going on? What's this whole thing about? If you, if you can't see it from, from me explaining some background and, and whatnot, uh, what I'm wanting us to see from those nine verses... Um, or eight verses, rather, is that we're seeing a power struggle. That's really what we just witnessed, right? Um, The issue at hand is authority. We we can't miss that, right? By what authority are you saying these things? What authority did John have, right? It's like authority is a big word here. It's a big power struggle. Um, So, again, the, the Sanhedrin controlled Judaism. 
They're made up of the rich. They're made up of uh, like the leading priests in Judaism, political figures, um, and teachers of the law. Those are like the four big groups that make up the Sanhedrin. So what that tells me in, in studying that is that these are the people who control a large amount of money. These are people who control the temple and how it's ran. These are, these are people who control the, the masses in general because there are a lot of political figures. And then these are the people who control the teaching because they're the teachers of religious law. Um, they have all kinds of power and all kinds of authority in and of themselves being on this council called the Sanhedrin. And if they admit that Jesus has authority from God, then they're going to have to admit that they've been using their money wrongly, that they've been abusing their power, that they've been abusing their position in the temple, and they have been teaching wrongly, especially about, consider, or, or about Jesus. Right, so they're going to have to admit all these things about themselves, and then they're going to have to agree with Jesus and repent. Which means that they're going to have to admit not just that they were wrong in some like, um, like academic sense, but that they're actually sinners and they have been sinning against God this entire time, and they don't want to give up that kind of control. They don't want to give up that kind of authority. They know the second that they admit Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is the Messiah, all of their power goes out the window, all their authority goes out the window because Jesus has it over them and he can command them to do whatever because he is sent by God. So what they would rather do is they would rather defy God himself so that they can keep what semblance of authority they think they have in their lives. That's really what we're seeing here. That's a power struggle. Um, But let's make this real. Right? right? We've kind of been looking at it through the text, right? Those awful people on the Sanhedrin, those wicked Jews. Um, I hope no one took that in a racist way, by the way. Um, I'm not trying to make a joke. I know some people think Christians are anti-Semitic. I definitely am not. Got a big star David on my leg. Um, so I just wanted to make that known uh, in case anyone thought that. When I said wicked Jews, there were a lot of good Jews back then too. Um, still are today. But let's make this real. Again, Man, I just ruined every train of thought that I have in that because I don't want anyone here to think that I'm like an anti-Semite because that would be the biggest irony in this church. Um, <laughs> right? But again, so we're, we're looking at this from like this 10,000-foot view looking down on the passage. Let's, um, let's bring this home. There's a power struggle going on. We take a big part in this power struggle ourselves. Right? Uh, we, by nature, don't want to submit. We don't want to submit to God. We don't want to submit to the authority of Christ at all. That's the nature that we're born into, right? We want to keep what control that we think that we have over our lives, and we like to keep the kind of control over how we live, what we think, what we do, just like the Sanhedrin wanted to keep theirs. But in what ways do we do that, right? How do we do that? Um, Simply put, I'm going to try to be as simple and as blunt as I can. Whenever we see in Scripture, right, either because we're reading or we hear um, preaching from the Bible or, you know, we're listening to to sermons or or we're listening to the Scripture read to us or whatever, whenever we see what's said in Scripture, what God demands and what God commands from us and how He wants us to live and what's right and what's morally wrong and what we're supposed to abstain from and what we're supposed to go out and positively do, whenever we see that and we rebel anyway, and we sin anyway, we are defying his authority. We're, we're creating this power struggle, right? We see what's commanded in Scripture, and then we sin anyway. And we do this in a lot of different ways. I'm just going to take a minute and, and talk about a few of them. Um, ones that uh, I see are kind of maybe prevalent, uh, maybe among uh, the general age group here, um, or in this church, actually. Um, 
I think one of the big ways, really big right now at least, that I, I'm seeing like on a daily basis that we reject the authority of Jesus Christ um, is, is with social issues, right? And it's about to get a little bit hot button in here, so uh, hear me out, right? Whenever I say social issues, and it might be because of the election coming up or the Supreme Court ruling from last June, um, things like that still kind of fresh on all of our minds. I see with social issues, people absolutely rejecting the authority of Jesus Christ in their lives. Some of it's more subtle than others, um, and some of it's just really outright. And right now, just for the record, I'm talking to Christians in here um, more than I'm talking to unbelievers. Right? Um, and, and what I see is with issues like homosexuality, um, transgender issues, and abortion. Right? Those are like the three big hot-button social issues of our day. And I see Christians outright reject the authority of Christ all the time in, in multiple ways. Um, People will say, you know, I'm a Christian, which means Jesus Christ is my Lord. He's my Savior, right? And a lot of people really don't think they know what that means, that he's your Lord, right? That means he's your king. You're a subject of his kingdom. So as he commands, as he thinks, you think and you do. That's what it means to be a disciple of Christ, to follow him so closely, right, that that you look like a small imitation of him. So whatever his opinions are, are your opinions. Whatever he would do is what you do. Whatever he would not do or would not think or would not say, you don't do those things either, Again, we're all imperfect, and I'm not saying that any of us are going to get this perfectly, and we're going to get into that. But with those three issues, um, I see people a lot. Um, you know, man, how do you, how do you feel about homosexuality or abortion or any of those things? And uh, I see people outright say things that claim to be Christians. Oh, that's 2016. That book's like 2,000 to 4,000 years old. Uh, I think it's time like Christianity have a makeover, things like that, and just outright just reject what the Bible says about those things. That the Bible would call practicing homosexuality sin, um, would call you know aborting a child sin, would call um, you know getting a transgender surgery kind of thing like that uh, sin. And they would say, no, I, I just disagree with that altogether. So that's a big one that I see from Christians. Um, and then there's a really subtle one. Where they, they, they just, they, they can outright reject it. Or then there's this subtle one that I see way more people do. Um, I don't really have an opinion. Right? Like anyone ever in that conversation with that Christian? Like, hey man, what do you think about like the whole trans thing? Mm, I don't know. You know what I mean? Like I really, which is code for like, please God, get me out of here. I don't want to talk. Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll, th- I'll throw this out to you. You can reject the authority of Jesus Christ by saying that you have no opinion on an issue that Jesus Christ has an opinion on. Just throwing that out there. Um, and I'm not saying that, that talking about this kind of stuff and standing your ground on what the Bible says is ever easy, but we can absolutely reject the authority of Christ by claiming neutrality on something that he speaks clearly on, right? That he knits children together in their mother's womb, and that, that they were fearfully and wonderfully made, and that God is sovereign and God is all-knowing. He doesn't make mistakes whenever he's choosing your gender, whenever you're in the womb, that God's the one who's ordained marriage and how it's supposed to be, right, between one man and one woman for life. Um, and we would claim neutrality on these kinds of things, is just a spit in the face of Jesus. Because he does not stand neutral. So how can we, as subjects of his kingdom, stand neutral whenever our king has made decrees and edicts? That doesn't make any sense. Um, But that's one. But maybe to to take it away from, you know, those people out there, right? Because that tends to be how we think about those three big hot-button issues, is that we don't uh, worry about those. Uh, Forgiving people, man. And I'm just getting real about myself. This is something that I'm I'm dealing with a lot. Um, Forgiving people and gossip. Right? Whenever we see Scripture say something so plain as, let's love your enemies, bless those who persecute you. Um, Paul says multiple times in the New Testament, don't gossip. Don't have anything to do with like slandering other people. Like That's not godly. Um, but here's what we normally do. Again, a lot of times Christians, we don't outright say, I don't care what Jesus said. What we'll do is, 
yeah, I know he says I should like forgive the person who hurt me or hurt my sister or, or who hurt my wife or something like that. I know he says I should forgive them and pursue reconciliation. But I'm, mm, it's just really hard, which again is code for like, I'm just not going to do it. Um, but what I will do is I'll sit around this table and talk smack about this person for a really long time and dr- like bring up all the things that they did and how they wronged me and the ones that I love. Um, which, again, is almost worse in my mind than just saying, yeah, I just outright reject what Jesus Christ said. To say, yeah, Jesus said that, and yeah, he's right, and yeah, he has the authority, but that but right there is you saying, but I reject the authority of Christ. I know he's right, but I just outright reject what he says. Right? This kind of um, my life, my way kind of a thinking. Um, well, sure, I know what Jesus says. Sure, I know what the Bible commands. And we could, again, we could do this all day long. i got a few more examples that we're not going to do for the sake of time. But it's morally upright living in general, where the Bible would tell us to, to be sexually pure, things like that. And then we would say, you know, that's dated, or, you know, this certain kind of sexual sin is lesser than this other kind. So, you know, choose the, the lesser of two evils kind of a thing. Um, any kind of time that we look at what Scripture says and then reject it, um, or look at what Scripture says and agree that it's right, but then do our own thing anyway, we're absolutely rejecting Jesus, right? Any time that we do Anytime that we say, anytime that we even think what we want and in contradiction to Scripture, we're rejecting Christ himself. Now, we don't think that way, but you guys know that cliche, actions speak louder than words? That I just kind of puked in my mouth a little bit saying that. Um, right? But our actions really do give away our hearts. I, I, like, I like that way better because it's not a cliche yet. Right? Your actions give away the posture of your heart, and they really do. The things that we do and the things that we say, the things that we think really speak for us. We don't have to say that we reject the authority of Christ whenever our hearts absolutely betray us in our actions. Um, And I'll say this to everyone, whether you're a Christian or whether you're not. Everyone rejects Jesus' authority from time to time. Everyone's a sinner. If you're a Christian, um, you're rejecting the authority of Christ sometimes. But hopefully, um, if you actually are a Christian, not hopefully, if you are a Christian, you're striving to submit to his authority more. So, but from time to time, you will reject his authority and you will sin because everyone sins. Um, and unbelievers, if, if you're here and you don't have your faith in Jesus Christ, you always reject the authority of Christ. You don't trust him for salvation. You, don't, you haven't repented. You haven't turned to him and put your faith and your trust in him. You're not a disciple of him. You outright reject him every single time that you actually take a breath. Um, you're, you're rejecting him in all things because you're doing nothing to his glory. Um, But again, I just wanted to hit both believers and unbelievers there. And everyone's a sinner. So everyone, at least some of the time, rejects the authority of Christ. Um, And here's where it's going to get really real, right? It's going down for real. We don't have a saxophone, though. Um, A couple of you got that ref. I started that song for the first time last week, like the clean version. (laughs) The sax part is awesome. Anyway, I like horns. Um, But Jesus goes on, actually, to tell a parable about rejecting his authority. He's going he's to tell us a parable about rejecting his authority and the consequences that come with it. So this is where it gets really real, and, and it, there, there are consequences for our actions of rejecting him. So let's go ahead and read this parable, starting in verse 9. Now Jesus turned to the people again and told them this story. A man planted a vineyard, leased it to tenant farmers, and moved to another country to live for several years. At the time of the grape harvest, he sent one of his servants to collect his share of the crop. But the farmers attacked the servant, beat him up, and sent him back empty-handed. So the owner sent another servant, but they also insulted him, beat him up, and sent him away empty-handed. A third man was sent, and they wounded him and chased him away. 
What will I do, the owner asked himself. I know, I'll send my cherished son. Surely they will respect him. But when the tenant farmers saw his son, they said to each other, Here comes the heir to this estate. Let's kill him and get the estate for ourselves. So they dragged him out of the vineyard and murdered him. What do you suppose the owner of the vineyard will do to them, Jesus asked. I'll tell you, he will come and kill those farmers and lease the vineyard to others. How terrible that such a thing should ever happen, his listeners protested. And Jesus looked at them and said, Then what does this scripture mean? The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. Everyone who stumbles over that stone will be broken to pieces, and it will crush anyone it falls on. The teachers of religious law and the leading priests wanted to arrest Jesus immediately because they realized he was telling the story against them. They were the wicked farmers, but they were afraid of the people's reaction. All right. So again, if we're not pointing our finger at those religious leaders in the Sanhedrin, but we're saying, that's us. Every day, someone rejects, like every, every day, everyone rejects the authority of Christ in some way. You might even be ignorant of it. You might not even know that you're sinning in some way, but rest assured, everyone in here sins every single day. So in some way or another, we're all part of this Sanhedrin who Jesus is telling this parable against. Everyone rejects the authority of Christ sometimes. Right? But in this parable, just to recap it real quick, this farmland, this estate, is representative of, of salvation. Right? This is God's blessing on his people. Um, and he said that, there, that he, he, he lends this estate out, right? because God's the, the owner in this parable. Um, he says he lends it out some tenant farmers. right? So how tenant farming worked, um, for those of you who don't know, I'm not from a farm kind of thing, but I read some books. Uh, tenant farming works this way. Uh, I own some land, and I don't want to work it. right? So I will let some poorer people come in and work on my land and live there and like sell some of the produce that they and, and eat some of the produce that they grow and I get a piece of their profits right or I get a piece of just the produce raw and I'll go sell it myself all right that's how it works I don't have to work it I just own it they work it for me they work the land and I end up profiting from it that's how tenant farming worked um, so that's what that's what this king does or not this king that's what this uh, owner does and then it comes time for the servants these tenant farmers to pay up right Give fruit back to the owner like he deserves, right? So for us, for our purposes this evening, I, I, this fruit is submission to Christ. This fruit is submission to God. This is actually what is owed to God. He commands us to submit. That's the agreement, right? If we're going to inherit this land, if we're going to live on this land, if we're going to get salvation from God, we give him what's due. We give him our submission. We, we accept Christ. Um, and the farmers, one by one, reject the servants who came on the owner's behalf, Right? Person after person saying, hey, give him what he's due. Give him what he's due. Submit to his authority. And they reject the owner. They show absolutely no submission. Right? And this is actually representative of the Old Testament prophets telling Israel over and over and over again, repent, repent, repent. So then the owner finally decides to send his son. And we know it's his only son because he refers to it in, in, in a singular. Obviously, I'll send my son. The, the wicked farmers call him the heir to the estate, so they know it's the only son that he has. So this owner sends his only son to go to them. Again, this is Jesus. And keep this in mind with the son who's the heir to the estate. He has all of the authority of the father. By proxy. Because he is the son. He comes on behalf of the father with all the authority that the father has and says, Submit. Give, us the, give, give me the fruit that you owe. And the farmers reject him and kill him. And then in step with justice, the owner kills the wicked, unsubmissive servants. 
or the unsubmissive farmers. And then he says he'll give the farm to the ones who will accept his authority. But here's the real question. Why were they destroyed? Why were they destroyed? Because they, they killed the son, right? They killed the son. But what's at the heart of, of their killing the son? What's at the heart of the Sanhedrin who's going to push and eventually have Jesus Christ crucified? They rejected his authority. That's really at the heart of this whole thing. Why were they killed? Why were they destroyed? Because they rejected the authority of the Son, which means by proxy, they reject the Father, which is what Jesus has said on repeat. If you reject me, you reject the Father. But if you accept me, you receive the Father as well. Right? So, so Jesus is saying there to these people, if you don't accept me, if you don't accept the authority that I have, if you don't accept me as the Messiah, the chosen one of God, the Son of God, sent here to save you, then you will be killed just like these farmers. God will destroy you in hell for eternity if you don't accept me. And the people hear this, and and they don't quite catch the whole illusion, but they know that Jesus is talking about God destroying them for rejecting Jesus. And the people hear this, and they say, no way would God do this to us. They say, surely not, is what they say. Surely God wouldn't do this. And then Jesus answers, and I, I love how Jesus answers stuff like that. Then why does God say that the stone that the builders rejected, that's Jesus, then why does he say the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone? The cornerstone being the most important stone. Right? Jesus is the cornerstone of this. He says the one that you reject, the one that you think is not worth following, the one that you think is not worth accepting and worth loving, is now the most important one, and you were too blind to see it. And it's going to crush all who stumble on it, which means all who reject it. They're going to be broken into pieces. Why would he say that? So again, Jesus is asking an open-ended question, and they know the answer. Um, And now this leaves us with a really crucial question. At least it does in my mind. Um, Are we hopeless? Right? And the reason why I ask, are we hopeless? Um, Is there there any kind of uh, respite from our our punishment? Uh, The reason why I ask that is, is we've already established that we all reject Jesus We all do that. Every day, whether you're a Christian or not, you reject the authority of Jesus Christ because you sin, and everyone does that. So will we be crushed? Will this cornerstone crush us? Will we stumble over it and be broken into pieces? We deserve that, do we not? The God who is the embodiment of love, who gives us every breath that we take, who's given us everything that we have, and we would still reject his authority from time to time and say, hey, I know that you're omnipotent and omniscient, but I think I know better on this. I think my way is going to be better. I know what you said. I know you technically have the authority, but I'm going to do what I want to do. Do we not deserve to be crushed? Absolutely we do. But is there hope for us? Is there hope? Right now, I want to take a, a hot minute and talk about letting Christ reign over us for a second. Because if you're here and you're a Christian, I don't want you to fret. If you're here and you're not a believer, you should be scared. It's what it is. Jesus does not make empty threats. But if you're a believer, I want to take a second and, and I want to talk about sanctification. Um, or, or that's a $5 word for letting Jesus Christ reign over you. Um, let it, submitting to him more and more. Um, in the words of Matt Chandler, if you guys don't listen to him, he's a way better preacher than me. Um, Matt Chandler, actually, he refers to this submitting to Jesus as the awkward dance of sanctification, right? And if you're like me, all your dances are awkward, whether they're religious or not. Uh, but, he, but he says, uh, he's like, you know, like you're going to take two steps forward in submitting to Jesus and maybe four steps back sometimes. 
You know what I mean? Or five steps forward, one step back. You're going to do really good. And, and it's just this back and forth, back and forth, back and forth of submitting to Christ and then rebelling and rejecting Him and then submitting to Christ again. And it may be over the same issue multiple times, but it's this awkward dance that we find ourselves in as Christians. And I'm going to read some scripture to you, a couple passages back to back that I believe address it. Um, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 says this, 12 through 14. This is Paul talking. I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things or that I've already reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. And then 1 John 1, 8 through 10. If we claim we have no sin, We are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. If we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. What I want us to notice in those things is Paul says, I've not reached perfection. I've not fully submitted myself to the authority of Christ. I still sin. John says, if anyone says they don't sin, they're a liar, which means you sin. Um, Right? Notice that even though there is not perfect obedience and perfect submission to Jesus Christ, in the life of a Christian, there is a constant push to submit more to Jesus, even if it's imperfectly. There's a a constant recognizing, I've not achieved this yet, I must strive for it. So as we follow Jesus, we we do this thing, uh, I'm going to call it the throne of your heart. Again, this is Matt Chandler's kind of words here. As we follow Jesus, we, we, we put him on the throne of our hearts, Meaning, reign over me. You're king over my life. Tell me what to do. Give me your instruction. This is what I want to do. And then down the road, we say, get off. I want back on there. <laughs> right? Because this hurts. This sucks. I don't want to stop doing this. I want to keep doing something that you don't want me to do. Or I don't want to actually go do something that you've told me to do. I don't want to be generous with my money. I really like my money. So get off the throne there for a minute. And then you realize, man, I really screwed up. And he is truly king. And this has not worked out well for me. And we say, Jesus, would you get back up on the throne? He sits there for certain. And then ad infinitum, we, like, we just keep doing this, like on and on and on and on and on. Um, and, and sometimes we go through seasons of, of disobedience for certain. Some are longer than others. But I want you to keep this in mind too. God, even in those seasons of disobedience, he never stops demanding that we give him the fruit that, that he deserves. He never stops demanding our submission ever. Right? And the thing is, if you really have put your faith in Jesus Christ, he will have it. He will have your obedience. Right? If you really follow Christ, you will, at some point or another, put Jesus back on the throne of your heart in whatever area that you've been rejecting his authority in. And I'm willing to say this, and uh, allow me to, to use some of this imagery and expound on it. Uh, I don't normally do this. But maybe every harvest season that you find yourself in, like these parables, like the parable said, maybe every harvest looks like this. You send away three servants telling you to repent. But then you bow to the sun, right? Maybe it's, it's you're going you're gonna to be hard against the authority of Christ in this one area that you really just don't want to relinquish and you really want to control. But at the end of the day, true Christians always put the sun back on the throne. True Christians always accept his authority again and admit that they had done wrong. That's just what we do. We may rebel in instances, but submission must come. Repentance must happen at some point. And if it doesn't, you're not a Christian. If you're at peace with being in rebellion against Christ, whether it be over a social issue, a moral issue, whatever it is, maybe it's just even your thinking. If you're not willing to put that sin to death and submit again to the authority of Christ, then you're not a Christian. 
Right? He will have your submission. Right? And I know like for like the last three or four weeks, we've been in this topic of repentance and, and true believers um, not remaining unrepentant. But this has been a huge theme in the words Jesus Christ spoke for like the last two and a half chapters. That means that he said this multiple times to multiple people in multiple different places. When the Bible repeats itself, listen. Again, Jesus doesn't say things for no reason. If Jesus says this kind of thing this often, it must be really important. He must not want us to be deceived into thinking that we trust him and follow him whenever we really don't. Right? Um, but again, I, and I'll say this. Uh, even though God doesn't cast us aside and damn us in those seasons of disobedience if you're a Christian, that doesn't mean that you should presume upon his grace. Right? You shouldn't take advantage of his grace is what I'm saying. Um, presuming upon it. And you shouldn't not take his calls to obedience seriously. Um, I guess what I'm getting at is you can't live your life rejecting Jesus' authority, which is basically the whole point of this parable. You can't live your life rejecting the authority of Jesus Christ and then think that God's wrath won't come. Like, you can't. Like, that's, that's foolishness. But that's what the people that are listening to Jesus thought. That's what a lot of people um, that, that assume that they're Christians because they come to church or because they go to Bible studies or whatever. It's what a lot of people think, right, is that, you know, ah, God's not really going to have wrath for me because, look, I do all these pretty good things, and I do some of these things the Bible tells me to do, not all of them. Um, I can reject Jesus in these one area, these few areas, and it doesn't matter. Um, he's not going to strike me down with any wrath. That's what the people listening to Jesus thought, and that's why they yelled how horrible it is that such a thing should happen. And that's just foolishness. It's just foolishness. To think that there's going to be no hell for rejecting Jesus Christ. That's, that's nuts. Right? Again, God doesn't issue warnings for no reason, but sometimes we really believe the opposite. Right? Think about this. The farmers thought that they could reject the son and then inherit the land. We'll kill him. And then the dad will just give us all the land. Like, it'll be cool. <laughs> That's really what they thought there, and that doesn't make any sense. But people, again, today do this. They say, you know, God is all love. He's all love. That's all that he is. And I'm not denying that attribute of God at all, but they say he is all love. He won't send people who rebel against him to hell because he loves them too much. Do you see how sin makes us delusional? Oh, God will be at peace with this. He's totally cool. He's all grace and mercy and love. And again, I'm not denying those things because he is the epitome of all that stuff. But sin, whenever we're in the midst of it and won't, like, won't kill it and won't accept the authority of Christ, it makes us foolish because it blinds us to the truth. It really does. You know, how will we receive salvation if we practically, what I mean by that is in our day-to-day lives, if we practically reject the Son? We won't. We can't inherit the, the estate. We can't inherit the land. We won't. It is impossible and incompatible with who God is because to reject the Son is to reject the Father. But the crux of all this, because I like to ask why, is why is it impossible to reject Jesus and still be saved? Why is that completely impossible? Because Jesus is the cornerstone. This is, this is a metaphor that we, we use a lot in churches. There are churches named Cornerstone. Um, there's one right down the street from us. But I, sometimes we, I don't really think that a lot of the times we know the importance of a cornerstone. Right? A cornerstone of a building is the most important stone that you're ever going to have in this whole thing. It's, it's, uh, some architects will refer to it as the foundation of the foundation back in ancient architecture. Um, everything about this building is based off of where the cornerstone is set. Like 
the angle of the building, how you're going to do the whole shebang is put on that. And it's because the cornerstone bears all of the weight and it joins walls together and it holds the entire building up. Without the cornerstone, without a solid cornerstone, there is no structure. All right, so, so let's think about this. Jesus calls himself the cornerstone, and that's actually exactly what he is for those who trust in him and who believe the gospel, right? All, the, all of us who, who trust in Jesus Christ for our salvation, right? Consider this. All of our stability and all of our hope before God's judgment on us is in Jesus and his work, right? Uh, he has bore the weight of our sin as the cornerstone, right? I'm not trying to get cheesy. Like, this is actually like what he's done for us. Cornerstone bears the weight of the building. Jesus Christ has bore the weight of our sin in his own body. As he goes to the cross and God the Father pours out hell, all of the wrath that we deserve for rejecting his authority. And he puts it out on Jesus. And Jesus Christ pays the penalty for our rejection. He bears the weight for us. That is the good news. That Jesus Christ has absorbed our debt if we will put our faith in him. Right? But in doing that, in bearing the weight for our sin, in bearing our just penalty that was due to us for our sin, in doing that, Jesus, the cornerstone, has joined together some walls that could never meet. And this is this huge, gaping wall between God and mankind. Right? And the gap between us is sin. But Jesus, the cornerstone, has filled that with his own body, with his own blood, with his sacrifice. And the two walls that could never meet are now united because Christ is what... Unites them together. That's what the cornerstone does. This is why we can't reject Jesus Christ and then expect to live. It doesn't make any sense. Right? This building, this structure that is our salvation, completely collapses without Jesus Christ. And with no building, there is no shelter for us to hide in from God's wrath for our former rejection of Jesus. The structure collapsed without the cornerstone. We can't reject the cornerstone and then think we're going to have shelter. It doesn't make sense. Remember our lives and whether or not we live striving to make Jesus our authority really proves if we accept him or reject him. Again, just saying I accept Jesus doesn't make it true. How you live your life is going to, to betray whether or not you actually believe that. But the great promise for those of us who do trust Christ and follow him is that he will be our shelter. Right? And that promise is as steadfast as the cornerstone himself. It's unchanging. But, you know, as sobering and convicting as that parable is, I want you to see our hope in it, too. Right? And this is something that I didn't see at first. God is patient with us. If... if if you can't think of a way that you've been rejecting the authority of Christ, I want you to think harder. And then whenever you find it, I want you to know God's been patient with you. He sent many servants in that parable. Think about that. Then he finally sent his own son. This is a long time. This is patience that we can't fully fathom in, in light of how wicked that these farmers were being. And how, in how, light of how wicked that we are, he's just patient. And he gives us chance after chance because he loves us dearly. Right? And I don't want us to lose sight of that whenever the Bible says something really challenging to us. Right? Like, God is not a fail and burn God. Right? That's not how he is towards his people. He is incredibly gracious with us. And he gives us opportunities to repent time after time when we sin. And he never gives up on us. Ever. He never washes his hands of us. He always invites us to come back to him. His love for us is never ending. 
You know, Philippians 1.6 says this, And I am certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. Right? God began the good work in us that allows us to submit to Jesus Christ as Lord and accept his authority. And he promises to keep us and continue to bring us to repentance even when we fail. There's hope for sinners there. That God doesn't leave you to your own strength to submit to the authority of Christ, but he's actually the one working in you so that you have the ability to do that. There's a lot of hope there. There's a lot of grace there that God loves us so much that he says, I won't just abandon you whenever you fail, but I'll keep you and push you right, to continue to accept my authority. You know, God is gracious that he doesn't just leave us in our sin, but he actually grants us repentance. But I, I want to show you one more passage, and then we're going to end our time together. I know it's been long. I normally don't preach quite this long, um, but this is huge. This is huge, because if you're a Christian here, I don't want you to, to doubt your salvation because you've failed in some area. I don't want that for you. 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13. This is a trustworthy saying. If we die with him, we will also live with him. If we endure hardship, we will reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are unfaithful, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny who he is. There's our hope. There's our hope as we fail, as we reject the authority from Christ from time to time. There is still our hope. I want you to understand those verses, and I want you to be encouraged as you strive to submit to Jesus. He says, if we deny Jesus, then he will deny us. And what that means, that doesn't mean failure. That does not mean failure. The denial depicted there by Paul is to reject entirely. No heart of submission, no awkward dance of trying to, you know, obey Christ more, but just an outright rejection. I don't care. He says, you do that, there's no hope for you. That, that's what he's depicting there. But, it's the one after that. In moments where we've failed to put Jesus first. In moments where we failed morally, in moments where we've not accepted the authority of Christ, if we are unfaithful, he remains faithful. There is our hope. He remains faithful to us, period, because he can't deny himself. He cannot deny who he is, and he is our cornerstone if we accept him. He is the shelter that we're going to hide in. He says, I won't deny that. I won't deny my promise that I will save you if you trust me. He says that he'll be the cornerstone that we can lead on. That, that he'll be the one who unites us to God. Take hope in that and strive. And if you're not a believer here, don't take the warnings of Christ lightly. Repent. And if you want someone to talk to you more about that, come see me after the service. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being a gracious, merciful God. Um, just time and time and again, you call us back to repentance. And you say, I've not washed my hands of you. You've rejected my authority this week, today, this hour, and speaking in a way you shouldn't, and doing something you shouldn't have done, and not going and loving someone the way you should, and not being an agent of reconciliation, or whatever it might be, whatever way that we've sinned, and you say, I'm still not done with you. I love you too much to leave you in that state. I'm going to convict you and bring you to repentance. And Father, that is a gift that we don't deserve. We didn't deserve our first round of repentance. 
we definitely don't deserve any more, and yet you just keep giving them, and you keep calling us back to accept your authority, and I appreciate that. Right, help us to serve you with gratitude. Help us to see how gracious you are, even in light of your hard commands and hard sayings. And help us to continue to serve you. Do something to us that we can't do to ourselves. Save somebody. Please. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.